Hello, this is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Daniel Hogan is in the studio, and today we're very excited to have Bill Reed with us. He is with Regenesis Group. In just a moment, Bill will be with us to share a story. And remember that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com if you'd like to be a guest or any comments uh, just to connect. This is Heartstock. It will be right back. This land was made for you and me As I went walking that ribbon of highway I saw the Welcome again. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. And today we're speaking with Bill Reed of Regenesis Group. Hi, Bill, and thanks for being on Heartstock. Thank you, Carol. Great to be here. Can you give our listeners a little intro here? What is Regenesis Group and what it is that you do there? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, We are exploring something in a different way. I'm an architect and planner, just to give a little bit of background. And what we do at Regenesis is look at not just the infrastructure of planning, uh, but the relationship of people and the relationship of nature and how our cities and communities actually are a whole system of interrelationships that ought to be mutually supportive of one another. Unfortunately, we know the last hundreds number of hundreds of years we've actually been destroying the very life systems that support our quality of life so our mission is to bring that back into a sense of positive relationship what we say value adding relationship our our tagline is we partner people with their places to heal ecosystems and the human spirit mm. So as an architect, I'm sure you have a very interesting and varied background. Can you tell us a little bit about oh, where you grew up? I know right before we started recording, you're in Boston and we were talking about I'm here in Montana. So I'm just wondering, are you originally from Boston and is that where you grew up? No. Well, I'm a Northeast boy. I was born in Pittsburgh, but spent most of my life in upstate New York and then outside of uh, New York City in New Jersey. So generally a New Yorker, Northeast uh, bias, I suppose. But I've lived all over uh, the country and West Coast and Arizona and New Mexico, where I found, if you will, my personal journey was in high school, my English teacher, and we had a very small high school, and uh, my English teacher was a very wise man. And he saw something in me, and he turned me on to an author Many of you may not recognize a fellow named Lewis Mumford. And Lewis Mumford is a social commentary, social critic, and architectural critic from the 20s and 30s. He died maybe about 10 years ago. And I was so enamored of what was being communicated about the nature of cities and the nature of how we live and the quality of life that I geeked out on this guy. 
and uh, even to the point of taking independent study for a half year in high school on writing a thesis on the sociological implications of urban and regional planning, which is kind of unusual for a high school level thinker. And that basically charted the course for the rest of my life, is how do we actually develop social quality of life, what's required for that? And so went into architecture school and then planning school at Cornell University, realized that planning wasn't doing what it needed to do, and I didn't know why. Didn't have the perspective to figure that out. Um, my advisors didn't either, but it wasn't until the sustainability movement came along in the 80s and 90s that I realized, uh, that's what we were missing from planning. What's the purpose of planning? And so that pretty much uh, circled back onto my high school years. It took me till I was about my mid-40s before I really figured out how to put it all together for, for my life, the way I felt that I needed to offer, what I needed to offer the world. So I'm wondering, um, the different places that you lived and went to school, can you talk about that a little bit and maybe how that may have impacted your ideas about city planning and what you saw that worked or maybe didn't work? Where, where <laughs> all did you go to, to school? Well, Were you always on well, the East Cor- Coast? I said, I went to Cornell University. That was pretty much it. I've spent, and then I, what, the work with Regenesis actually was my primary school. And I think it's important to talk about that, and then I'll circle back into where I lived. Regenesis combined, if you will, architecture, community development, permaculture. How do we actually work health in a healthy way with the land that supports us? And uh, also organizational development or organizational psychology. How do we actually work with groups of people to accomplish things in a much more effective way? We kind of put all those together and say, well, we must be able, we must be able to work on these as a more, more complete whole system. So that, for me, was my great education. And when did that begin? That began, I was uh, one of the early leaders in the green building movement, as well as alternative energy work. I was doing passive solar design in the late 1970s. And that led me to actually understand that you can get free energy from the sun. Imagine that, <laughs> instead of having to turn on a uh, boiler. Yeah. I Well, and I'm just thinking, you know, it's such a, a great idea. And here we are still burning fossil fuels, but that's that's another conversation. I don't want to get us off course well, here. It's, it's the same. It is the same conversation. Let's go. Why, why don't we think logically, right? Why don't we use what's given to us for free instead of reinventing it? Mm-hmm. And there's lots of nuanced reasons, but uh, we can or we can figure these things out. So I was on that path about, well, why don't we do this logical approach of using the sun? And that, of course, has been pretty frustrating throughout most of my life. But going beyond that is, uh, why don't we work with what gives us clean water? Well, trees and plants and the soil give us clean water. Well, why aren't we taking care of that? That's for free, if you will. That's Those things offer us beauty and quality of life. Why don't we put those two and two together and figure out why those uh, work, how those work so effectively? So my journey was from passive solar design to the U.S. Green Building Council. I'm one of the founding board members of the U.S. Green Building Council to the lead rating system. I'm one of the founders of the lead rating system. You know, how do we actually evaluate if we're doing better buildings? And that led me to think, well, then how do we integrate all these activities, uh, energy efficiency and water quality and indoor environmental quality and 
material safety and, and healthy materials. We just have a bunch of checklists for that. Well, they should be put together as a whole system. So I began to work on integrative uh, design thinking, wrote a book on that subject with uh, the Seven Group. And from there, the question is, where do we stop integrating? Is it just the building? Is it the building and the site? Is it the building, the site, and the watershed, and then the community? And you realize, oh my goodness, this is a almost a metaphysical question. How do we develop relationships for meaningful and common purpose? And so Regenesis um, is uh, a kind of company and organization and think tank, if you will, that is addressing those questions. Mm-hmm. So did all of this kind of mind expanding approach or mind expanded approach happen at Cornell or can you kind no, of No, I wish us? it had. It would yeah. have been made life so much easier. No, this is 19. <laughs> so 19, mid 1990s is when we founded the U.S. Green Building Council and the LEED rating system. And then the late 90s is when I was working on integrative systems thinking and I was giving a speech down in Austin, Texas. And Regenesis had just been started in 1995 they were there and they heard me speak and they said, well, you're onto something. And we're, you, might, you might be interested to hear what we're, what we're working on. And indeed I was. So from the late 90s till now, I've been engaged and we've all been engaged in trying to figure out how do we actually make this practical, make this work meaningful and exciting for people. And we use this the entry point in our work through building design and infrastructure design. How do we use those acupuncture points to begin to re-engage people in the systems of life that support our lives? So as a result of your speech in Austin, did you go to Cornell at that point? Yeah, I was at Cornell in the 70s. So I'm, mm. when was I? I guess I graduated in 75 from Cornell with a degree in architecture. And then you, did you have your own architectural design yes, firm? Yes, I did. I, mm-hmm. I had my own architecture firm, and, that for, and I moved to Washington, D.C., and so my firm was in Washington, D.C., and I practiced there for 15 years or so. And then my firm was purchased by a, a larger firm out of Princeton, New Jersey, the Hillier Group. They theoretically wanted the kind of thinking that we offered, but it was not... Uh, it was seen more as a marketing opportunity rather than a transformational opportunity for the firm. So that was not a happy relationship. It wasn't unhappy either. It just wasn't uh, as effective as I would have liked it to have been. And that ended in the late 1990s. So I've been on my own working with Regenesis since then. Mm. And you asked where I lived and with the, the, the framing. Um, so I grew up right outside New York City as well as the country, and I lived in Vermont. So I've lived in the densest urban environments as well as uh, suburban environments as well as rural environments. And um, the quality of life in all of them has pros and cons. So then what's the, the question that I kept asking myself, and what I learned from Lewis Mumford originally is that the automobile would destroy the city. He predicted that in the 20s and 30s. That still is the case. The automobile has, has effectively destroyed the fabric of life that we know. It's given us lots of benefits, but it's actually destroyed, I think, more than it's helped. So how do we actually reframe our existence on the planet in a way that supports the quality of life that we need as people, but the quality of life, if you will, that 
the insects and the birds and uh, the mycelium in the soil that they need, because without each other, we are bereft of, of health. Wow, there's so much to talk about there. One of the things that you, you just said is very fascinating to me and is maybe somewhat tied to the whole automobile idea and the urban flight to the suburbs. But um, when I lived in D.C., being a little bit of a country bumpkin, <laughs> honestly speaking, I was aghast at the contrast between complete and total opulence to neighborhoods that were some of the worst neighborhoods I've ever seen in my life, including in third world countries. How did we get there and how do we, how do we fix this? Um, maybe that's a better question for the, the second part of our show, but what was your take on that when you lived in D.C.? Did you get a sense of that? Oh, for sure. And I, I actually worked on housing issues in D.C. as well as worked in some of the most bleak neighborhoods, walking into the middle of drug deals on the side of the street or in lobbies of buildings. So, yeah, I guess I'm growing up around New York. I, I'm, I'm a, I have enough street smarts that I'm not bothered by that, maybe as much as I should be. But what it speaks to really is this incredible breakdown between the haves and the have-nots. And I think our culture is, um, we have this very strange, and I realize I'm speaking in Montana now, but I'll speak it from the a liberal Northeastern's point of view. We have this very strange attitude about socialism. And I look at it as that we, we're caring for each other. How do we care for each other? That it's not just uh, me against the world and uh, every man for himself, but our quality of lives are dependent on each other. And part of planning any kind of city or even a building project, there's an opportunity to bring people together around the benefits that, it, that can accrue for that and how we work together to achieve those, which is a much longer story. But the big picture is how do we work together in the service of something even larger and more important, which is the living systems that are rapidly being depleted. Those are our life support systems. It's remarkable that we are, are, don't, don't talk about this very much, but we're destroying the very systems and species and life that actually give us life. I'm not sure people are really how aware they are of that. And those connections are so important. Sorry, I'm a little bit on my soapbox here, Carol. So That's great. <laughs> this, this is the, soap, the ultimate soapbox. So we're going to take our midway point break here in just a moment. We'll be back with Bill and talk about Regenesis. This is Hard Stock.
This is Heartstock Radio. Welcome back. We're speaking with Bill Reed. Are you the founder of Regenesis, Bill? Or? No, I'm not. Oh, okay. I'm, I actually, the founders uh, found me about a year after they founded Regenesis. Mm, who is the founder? Uh, Pamela Mang, mm. who's a very deep organizational development practitioner. Ben Haggard, who's one of the early permaculturists in the United States, Tim Murphy, another permaculture, Joel Glansberg, and then Bob Mang, uh, who Pamela's husband, who's a developer. Mm, lovely. And, you know, I'm hoping you can kind of give us a sense of how you're funded and how you operate. If I need your services or who do you offer your services to, how does that, how does that work? Well, that's that's a kind of a I find it a fun story is that we thought that we were going to be supported by just doing business with cities and with nonprofits who were interested in kind of the mission of what we were about in terms of healing ecosystems. And n- not one of those groups could understand what we were about. <laughs> what was interesting is that private developers hmm. were our clients. They are the ones that actually said we need this. You would think they would be the last people that would be interested. But these were developers who were advancing the cause of sustainability and realizing that it was a way to actually make more money. It costs you less money to work with nature than to, than to force yourself against it. And when they heard about regeneration, they said, that's what we want. So our, our major business has been through at-risk, if you will, developers who um, – realized this is a better way to go. Mm-hmm. Now, since that time, we have become, we've broken up into two different groups. We have the Regenesis Institute, and that is primarily an educational group. And that's where most of our efforts have been spent. And that is a nonprofit organization. I'm the head of Regenesis Consulting, and we do this work with developers. And, and now municipalities are actually getting interested in this around the world. So we work, we've worked in every continent except Asia and Antarctica. But we spend a lot of time in Australia, New Zealand, and South America, Central America, Europe, Africa, hmm. uh, doing work with cities and uh, complex infrastructure projects. Conflict infrastructure. Hmm. So that leads me to the next question. How is it different working in, say, Africa compared to the United States? What kind of challenges do you find in the different geographies? Oh, boy, that's a good question. And I, the simple answer is not much uh, because human nature is human nature. And most people are educated in a Western worldview of dividing the world into little pieces and fragments and solving it piece by piece. We were almost hardwired for that. That's actually what's destroying the planet. You can't solve the whole system of problems that we have piece by piece or problem by problem. You need to solve it as a whole system. So it requires a reframing of of the mind to work on when you're working on an infrastructure project. Sorry, I'm going to go down this pathway because I think it's important to explain you're working on an infrastructure project or a building, that infrastructure and building are adding value to the larger system that they're part of, and they're receiving value from that system. Does that make sense? Let me stop there for a second. Adding and receiving, well, it sounds like a circular system. Well, it is, right? Because a building needs electricity, it needs water, it needs to be able to treat waste. 
people live in that building and they live in there for a reason and they're serving the larger system. They have jobs to do. Those jobs are supported by another economic structure. So there's nothing that's separate. The building doesn't live as an island. It is directly connected to all those other activities. Okay. Exactly. So yeah. when you're working on a building and if you're working on sustainability, you actually have to understand those relationships and support them. So there's an opportunity to actually add value to the system if you're conscious. So a simple example is a wastewater treatment plant uh, we worked on in Vancouver. We have two very large ones. These are multiple billion dollar plants. But the aim of the plant originally when we were first hired was to save the taxpayer money. That's all that they felt that was what their job was, the Metro Vancouver, the, the utility. By the time we were done, they realized what they were really doing was working on the health of the ecosystem. And that, that was their major purpose. Wastewater treatment was one aspect of the health of an ecosystem. And could you actually gather multiple people together to work on the health of the ecosystem as part of the operation of thinking about what that wastewater treatment plant could do? What was the potential of the wastewater treatment plant? The second wastewater treatment plant that we did, they had so embraced that concept that they said the aim or the purpose of this wastewater treatment plant is to save the orca whales. That came from the director as our mandate and the second wastewater treatment plant. And so the focus of the plant was not just to treat waste, but to treat waste in such a way and to engage the community to work together to work on the health of the Fraser River and the Salish Sea mm. in the multiple arenas that needed to be addressed, not just treating human waste, but treating solid waste and plastics and human relationships in order to work effectively together. And how do we work with people that were concerned about habitat and gender equity and all or security or material safety all those things aspects contribute to the health of the whole system so can we use that wastewater treatment plant as an acupuncture point to engage all those stakeholders to work together more effectively in service of that larger system have you ever had anybody say no this approach is just far too complicated and far too difficult Yep. We just so, want to build a wastewater treatment plant. That, that's right. And and then we say, that's fine. You can you don't need us then. You go build a wastewater treatment plant. What we're looking for are people that actually realize that there's so many more important things to address in the process of doing this work. And by the way, this is really important. We save people years of site plan approval, years of litigation. The, the first cost costs less. And the operation costs cost tremendously less. So we're saving people, you know, you know that expression, faster, better, cheaper, pick two. We actually can give you all three, faster, better, and cheaper. Well, and that's the foresight and the vision. You know, we were talking earlier about where I'm at here and where the show is produced in, in Butte, Montana, being a super fun cleanup site. And that was the, the impetus and the vision, you know, growing up here in a super fun cleanup site. And then, you know, 30 years after the designation, seeing how much money work and difficulty and it, quite frankly, impossibility of cleaning up what was done by business essentially operating strictly on the basis of profit as opposed to this whole system approach. So that 
is a, a total mind shift. How do you and are you able to get, I mean, this wastewater treatment plan, I think, is a good example. How were you able to shift people's minds? Yeah, well, that's, that is the question, Carol. And what we do is we invite people to think about potential rather than problems. What are the opportunities here? And we invite people to think on this, on the first wastewater treatment plant we worked on in Vancouver, we actually gave away two months of our services for free because we said, unless we are aligned as a design team, by the way, there are 135 people on the design team. Unless we are aligned together around what we believe, what are, what premises we hold, what principles we hold, what are what's appropriate for this particular community and ecosystem, unless we're aligned about that, we're going to have arguments and disagreements, and we're going to be backtracking on the design process for years because these are year-long, multiple year-long projects. Let's get aligned in the beginning. And they said, that's a great idea, but we don't have the money to pay you for that. You just have, you're supposed to just do this, facilitate, and facilitate this design team to help them work more effectively together. That's why we were hired. And we said, we'll give you, we'll give you two months for free because we know if we don't do this, it is going to cost us more money in the long run. And you're going to be dissatisfied. They said, well, knock yourself out. So we worked with them for two months on developing a common purpose statement, much harder than you think. Uh, what kind of how are you going to accomplish things? What functional things need to be done? How who do you need to be in relationship with, and how are you in relationship in order to do that? And what's the purpose of the purpose? Why are you really doing this wastewater treatment plant? Not just because you need to treat waste, but there's multiple other reasons. And unless we understand those, we're not going to be effective in this work. Mm-hmm. We worked with them for two months doing that. By the way, at the end of that, they said that was amazing. What did it cost you? I gave them the, the, what we had spent, and they wrote out a check that afternoon. So <laughs> what's important is to take the risk and do what's right. But that process of aligning around common purpose and getting them to actually dig deep into what's in their heart, and what's in their logical thinking about this, so that we can work together. It's a process of unfolding. Mm-hmm. We've got about two minutes left. What I was hoping is you could share with us a little bit about what lays ahead for you and your organization in the future and also how folks might reach you. Okay. We are the most important thing we're doing now. I'm an architect and planner. I'm a consultant. I like to work on on real projects. But the most important thing is educating people to think this way and to think and be able to manage the kind of work they do. And so we've We've taught about 800 to 900 people over the last number of, uh, say, eight years. And they are building multiple networks now around the world. So that is really the most important thing that's ahead of it for us, is building that capability. Hopefully I can find, and the, the consulting group finds enough work that we can actually put those people to work if they don't define their own work. But that's, that's happening now. And how people can get in touch with us, well, we are at regenesisgroup.com. My email is read at regenesisgroup.com. And happy to converse with anybody if you're interested in exploring more. Hmm. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story. And of course, I always have to thank folks for doing the exceptional work uh, that you're doing to bring about some amazing changes on our planet 
Very inspiring. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Carol. Mm -hmm. And as usual, we shall be back next week with yet another great show. This is Hardstock. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Peace. And the dust clouds rolling, the voices chanting as the fog is lifting. Hardstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. Oh